You know, I want to take a minute to thank our wonderful sponsors. Without our sponsors, especially our three annual sponsors, David Carell of United Creative Concepts, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, and Campbell University Divinity School, this podcast wouldn't happen. So here's where you come in. Take a few minutes to go to each of their websites and check out what they have to offer. If you really want to take the next level, be sure to tweet about this episode and thank our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts. At UCC, they specialize in partnering with churches and ministries like yours to provide quality products for your logo and branding. David likes to find the right products that represent and fit your desired need and budget. UCC can logo virtually any product that you might be looking for. Need apparel like t-shirts, jackets, polos, socks for staff, youth groups, conferences, or for many other branding needs? UCC is your one-stop shop. UCC can provide all logoed items that you use for visitors, from pins to drinkware, or tees for VBS. David desires to be your go-to guy for all items logoed. On a personal note, I've been using David at Universal Creative Concepts since 2009, and I hope you will give him the opportunity to serve your promo needs. Whatever you want logoed, David does it. Contact him today at 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.NET. That's 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.NET. Hey, you won't be disappointed. This episode is brought to you by Sama Films. Sama Films is a full-service video production company based in Atlanta, Georgia. They have worked in more than 40 countries around the world telling the stories of nonprofits, churches, and organizations that make a difference. Their videos have launched multi-million dollar fundraising campaigns and helped secure funding from competitive grants. Whatever your story, whatever your need, Sama Films has experience to help you tell it. Tell your story today. Call 404-796-7467 or email info at samafilms.com. That's info at S-E-M-A-F-I-L-M-S. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, we want to make you aware of the next month's worth of episodes and this week's presenting sponsor. For the next few episodes, you'll hear interviews with author Bree McCoy, contributing writer for The Guardian, Daniel Jose Camacho, and a live interview with Michael Ware at General Assembly in Dallas, Texas. This podcast episode is brought to you by the 2018 Summer Conference of the Baptist Peace Fellowship of North America, Bautista por la Paz. The annual conference of BPFNA, Bautista por la Paz, is for everyone who longs for the spirituality, inspiration, skills, knowledge, and community that supports a life of peace rooted in justice. Join BPFNA this year from July 2nd through the 7th on the campus of Cuca College in Cuca Park, New York, for a powerful week focusing on decentering power and privilege as we seek to become the peculiar people of God. The conference will feature an impressive lineup of speakers, music, workshops, and more to empower your work for social justice. Come for a day or a couple days or for a full week, child care will be provided, and children and youth will have their age-appropriate peacemaking programming. The final day to register without a late fee is June the 8th, 2018. BPFNA, a welcoming community of peacemakers, hopes to see you at Cuca College for a life-changing experience. Visit 
bpfna.org backslash gather for more information and to register or call 704-521-6051 or email bpfna at bpfna with any questions. Our guest for this week's podcast is the brilliant Rachel Held Evans. She is the author of Faith Unraveled, A Year of Biblical Womanhood, my personal favorite, Searching for Sunday, and soon to be released, Inspired. Her writing has been featured in the Washington Post, The Guardian, Christianity Today, Slate, The Huffington Post, CNN Belief Blog. I mean, I'm going to keep going. NPR, The BBC, The Today Show, and The View. Okay, I did a little digging, and I found out that you grew up in Alabama, but you were transplanted Tennessee, but you still held on to your Crimson Tide roots. What was it like being in enemy territory for a long time? <laughs> oh, it was, it was actually pretty bad because we moved, you'd think, I mean, I'm an Alabama fan. People around here are Tennessee fans. I clearly have the advantage in that situation. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, they have nothing to pull for in the last you know, 20 but, years. Right. But if you will recall, I moved here in uh, 1994, 95, mm. and I was here and I was in high school 96, 97, 98. And you might recall that's when Tennessee had Peyton Manning as a quarterback. And they killed us three years in a row when I was in high school here. And I had come to town all, you know, swagger and proud, wearing my Bama shirts, dissing on Tennessee. And they killed us three years in a row. And my yard got rolled. My locker was, you know, vandalized with the horrible orange that is the Tennessee Vols orange. And yeah, it was it was a rough high school experience for me. And then, of course, we start winning when I'm in college and nobody cares. And, you know, so yeah, it was it was it was tough for a while. Now it's, it's gotten a little bit better. Um, but have so many dear friends who are hardcore Tennessee fans that I actually have been kind of in mourning with them over the last few years. It's been so bad for them. I'm hopeful that things are about to turn around for Tennessee because I actually kind of pull for Tennessee now when they're not playing Bama Mm. Uh, because basically it's better to have happy neighbors than angry neighbors. We could somewhat count it as community service to be friends to Tennessee fans. You know, <laughs> I think most along. of them see it as community service to be friends with me. <laughs> I, I, I kind of get, you know, it's uh, yeah, Alabama fans where we can be a little intense. Just just a little bit. My dad's, uh, you know, dad's a, a graduate. <clears throat> His famous saying is, "You put half the Alabama fans in the middle of Tuscaloosa and they can't find the university." <laughs> True. That goes for a lot of a lot of big bandwagon teams. So, what part of Alabama were you from? Uh, Birmingham. Oh, really? That's why I was born in Birmingham. Is that right? Yeah. Wait, I grew up how in, old uh, are you? Like, are we? We're oh, hold that? on. Let's not start talking ages. I mean, <laughs> uh, so uh, I'm born in Birmingham, and then I grew up in Alabaster. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I moved here when I was in eighth grade, so I, you know, never. I was never there as a teenager or a young adult, so I don't really know my way around town or anything. You know, I go back to visit. It feels like I'm a visitor. It doesn't exactly feel like going home, except for the Alabama paraphernalia. Yeah. Well, look, I went back to Alabaster a couple of years ago. When we left, it was, um, I know our listeners are like, why are they talking about this? But um, <laughs> so I went back a couple of years ago. When we left Alabaster, there was a McDonald's, a grocery store, and like kind of like a country cooking type place. Yeah. And then I went back a couple of years ago and they have three Starbucks in Alabaster. It's oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah, that whole area has really grown up. Like it's, 
Yeah, it's changed a lot. I remember when alabaster was considered rural. Rural. Yeah. I love the fact that we're going to get done with this conversation and people were like, hey, what did you talk to Rachel Hold Evans about? And we, we talked about Alabama football. <laughs> right. and, you know, small town Alabama world. All right. So let's let's get to before you were a New York Times bestseller and before you became the reviewer of all quality books. Uh, tell us a little bit more about you. <laughs> um, oh, right. Well, I grew up in Birmingham and moved to Tennessee when I was in high school. And I moved to Dayton, Tennessee, which is uh, this tiny little town out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but it's famous for being the home to the uh, famous Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925. So we're, we're famous for being the place where they had this great trial of the century around uh Bible versus evolution, because they were trying a, a public high school teacher for teaching evolution in public schools. So that's kind of our claim to fame. And the town is still very, um, very conservative, very Bible belt. Uh, and so, and I kind of grew up in that tradition in a conservative evangelical home. Uh, and then just, yeah, had some questions and doubts in my young adulthood that uh, I've written about and shared a lot about in my writing. And um, yeah, still we still live here in Dayton, Tennessee, my husband and I, and we have a uh, two-year-old boy and a little girl who's due any day now. <laughs> so, well, oh, wow, really? Well, she's due in May, but I feel like she's, I just feel like she's going to make an early appearance. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, hopefully this interview doesn't push you into early life. <laughs> I'm not too worried about that. Uh, well, congratulations, Early, because by the time this podcast airs, you hopefully will be holding a new uh, new baby little girl. So Yay, that's hard to believe. So uh, this this shouldn't really surprise you, but um, you've been a, a verbal and digital punching bag for a lot of angry evangelicals. And my God, if you just Google Rachel Held Evans, which I don't ever recommend that you do, but uh, <laughs> you'll find a collection of some of the most vile self-righteous and malicious criticisms of views by supposed Christ followers. What's it like for you living into this vocation of the ministry of writing in this tumultuous era of religion? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and maybe I've just gotten used to it because it doesn't really bother me anymore. Um, and I always tell pastors, because pastors often ask me, like, how do you deal with so much criticism? You know, criticism is a hard part of the job and yours is you know, constant. And I always tell them that, like, at least I can delete my trolls. You know, I can block them. You can't exactly <laughs> block that parishioner who's just driving you mad or, you know, the person on the deacon board <laughs> who is the thorn in your flesh. So, you know, when you write a lot online, and especially when you're a woman who writes a lot online, you know, that's just, frankly, sadly, it's part of the job is that you get pushback. Um, some of it's trollish, you know, the really hateful, absurd stuff that's just pretty easy to ignore or um, to block and delete and that sort of thing. And then sometimes it, it's, it's more, you know, just the folks who they have disagreements with my theology or, uh, or more likely, you know, guys who have a problem that I have theology, <laughs> have a problem with the fact that I'm writing about faith and um, you know, I'm a woman and I haven't been to seminary and um, I rely on the scholarship of other people and I try to make that available to regular people. And yeah, it just sometimes rubs people the wrong way. It's kind of like, who does she think she is uh, writing about these issues and writing about faith and politics and 
uh, biblical interpretation and, and all that stuff when um, that's my job, you know, so there's, there's always a contingency of, of folks who give me a hard time for that. And it's, it's hard sometimes and it, it gets under my skin. I try, you know, criticism can be really informative in the sense that I try to pay attention to what really bothers me because the stuff that just kind of rolls off my back, it means, you know, I'm not too concerned about that. But if, you know, somebody says something that really hurts and that I run over and over in my mind, it usually means that they have said something uh, that is either a lie I like to believe about myself or um, some kind of truth that I maybe actually need to hear. Uh, I'm, if, it, if it's bothering me, it means there's some kernel of it that I believe. Uh, and so it can be really instructive to take some time to really consider why does this criticism hurt so much? Might I learn something from it or might I need to talk to myself about this lie that I like to believe? Um, so it's like, you know, if, if somebody says Rachel Held Evans is going to burn in hell forever because she supports women in ministry, I'm like, well, whatever. Like, I don't really worry about that. But if somebody says something like, um, oh, the, the conclusion of Rachel Held Evans' last book seems a little rushed. I'm like, oh man, they're right. You know, <laughs> like I get real upset because I'm like, oh no, they're right. They, they, they saw that. I wasn't proud of that chapter either. You know, if it taps into some kind of truth or some kind of insecurity, um, that's what usually gets under my skin. So I try to pay attention to it and learn from it. Hmm. Well, hopefully we didn't give fodder to anybody who's trying to advance the way they criticize you. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> the great... Um, uh, psychoanalyst Carl Jung, uh, one of my favorite quotes, said, everything that irritates us about others can lead us to an understanding of ourself. Uh, so may your best critics um, reflect um, on these things as they type their hateful words towards you. <laughs> you kind of answered my question of the uh, next question, which was going to be, you know, how does this resistance inspire you? Oh, you mean the, oh, right. Well, you know, and there's always the, I'm the kind of person, if somebody tells me I can't do something, I'm like, watch me. You know, that's, <laughs> you know they, people do sometimes uh, underestimate. I, I like to be underestimated. That's my favorite thing is when people say, well, she can't do this or that, or she can't write about that or address this but, um, because you know, she's not qualified to do that. I, I like going in with uh, with people underestimating me. And so when, people pour that criticism out. They're actually kind of just adding <laughs> fuel to my fire. Um, and I think women are often underestimated and I try to actually work that to my advantage, you know, and, um, and surprise people. And so I think with the, the, like the latest project, the criticism that I'm sort of most prepared for is one that I get a lot, which is how dare she write about the Bible when she you know, hasn't been to seminary, she's not a pastor, she's not a biblical scholar. And, uh, you know, I feel like there's a couple of things. One, it's important to know what you don't know. And I know what I don't know. <laughs> you know, I'm aware of the limitations that I have in taking on projects like this. Um, but also, I think that uh, pastors and scholars uh, need people, need lay people like me who are writers, who are creatives to engage with the biblical text too uh, and to shed new light on it based on our experiences and what we look for. You know, as a writer, I want to know, okay, so when, you know, that when 
the epistles of Paul were circulating around these house churches. You know, what did these house churches smell like? <laughs> you know, where did, where did the people sit to listen to these letters read? And what were their names? And what were, you know, what, what was their life? What were their lives like? You know, those are the sort of questions as a writer that I come to the text asking and, and, and I come to the text curious about. And I actually think that um, folks can benefit from that, from the perspectives of artists and, and writers. And so the way I kind of approached this latest project was I relied on the scholarship of people I trust, you know, Walter Brueggemann, um, Peter Enns, uh, the scholarship of womanist uh, interpretations and, and midrashic interpretations from the Jewish community. Uh, I relied on all of that uh, for the scholarship end of it, but then I tried to infuse some creativity that I bring to the conversation because I'm a writer and I think about things as a writer. I think about taste, touch, smell, sound. I think about uh, images and metaphors and I think about genre, which I think is one of the biggest mistakes we make when it comes to biblical interpretation is misassigning genre uh, to the various texts. We give, we put, you know, Genesis 1 into the wrong genre category. So I felt like I could offer something on that. So yeah, the criticisms that I anticipated with this project actually really helped me narrow down what my mission was, you know, and my mission was not to introduce brand new biblical scholarship. My mission was to introduce biblical scholarship to regular people uh, in a way that was really creative and that sparked their imagination. And so, yeah, a lot of times the criticisms, they help you decide who are you and what are you doing and what's your mission in your work? What's your calling in your work? And so with every criticism, I feel like my sense of my own call actually gets a lot clearer. Uh, so I'm able to respond to those with a, a bit more integrity. You could always <clears throat> remind those that want to question your credentials that they're supposedly following an uneducated, halfway decent carpenter from Nazareth. So. <laughs> right. Yeah, that doesn't usually fly. <laughs> no. <laughs> We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Campbell University Divinity School. Committed to Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused theological education, and committing to helping you answer your call with a variety of master's and doctoral-level programs. Campbell University Divinity School understand that those who have answered the call to ministry face many challenges. One of those challenges is maintaining a healthy balance in the face of stress, long hours, and high demands. If you're a minister and long for a place of retreat, please consider attending Campbell's third annual Minister's Health Summit on Thursday, June the 7th. The Minister's Health Summit is a one-day retreat that promotes wellness, self-care, and education for ministers and offers ideas to promote healthy lifestyle habits for the people they serve. Registration for the event is $30 and includes a free health screening, breakfast and lunch, one large keynote session, two breakout sessions, resources for ministers and congregational health, as well as a t-shirt. The event will begin at 8 a.m. and last until 5.15 p.m. For more information on our keynote speaker, breakout sessions, and schedule, please visit divinity.campbell.edu and click on the events under the church relations tab. So you, you've been the voice of reason to um, to the way that uh, many as as Christ followers in America are, are rethinking uh, faith and politics in the church, and you've uh, you've awakened within uh, many the ability to think theologically and hermeneutically when um, when they've been told for years that they can't think that they can't believe this they can't question that. And I wonder 
if you might share some stories of how your work has blessed others and how you've been blessed in return. Oh, that's so, that's such a nice question. Um, yeah, I, I always, it's always encouraging to hear back from people who, I hear from a lot of women who decided to pursue ordination uh, because of something I wrote. And that always just, that just makes me so happy. That just carries me for the rest of the day, knowing that uh, I had a small part in that person's call and that it gave them permission to pursue that call. That that just thrills me because I think of all the ways that those women are going to minister to other people and just the domino effect of that. And um, and it's it's super encouraging. I also like it when I hear from people who take something I've written and they creatively incorporate it into their worship. Um, so like in A Year of Biblical Womanhood, I wrote uh, kind of a tribute to the women who were victims of the texts of terror, as they're sometimes called, you know, stories from the Bible where women are victims of uh, misogyny and violence against women and patriarchy. And I've heard from several people who incorporated what I did to honor those women and what I wrote about those women into uh, services where they too honor those women and also women who are presently um, victims of you know, domestic violence or uh, misogyny or sexism. And that, you know, people will send me the order of service and show what they did or incorporating my words. And it's just, I love the idea of people inviting those words into a community, not just sitting alone and reading my books, but uh, bringing the words and the ideas into the context of a faith community it just makes me, uh, it just is encouraging to know that, um, yeah, that, that reading isn't just a solitary process for people, that it actually might help bring them closer to God and to one another. So it's always an honor that anybody would spend any time in the company of my words. It really is. And I try with every book release and uh, with every big article that gets a lot of attention or whatever it may be, I really try to imagine that book or that article in people's homes and in their lives and on their messy kitchen counter and, and think about no matter what the sales are, no matter what the reception is, what an honor to be invited into people's lives in that small way for that, that short amount of time. It's, it's, it's crazy. I can't believe I get to do this for a living. I really can't. It's, it's awesome. We should be living a life uh, out of abundance because you've blessed a lot of people uh, through your great, work, including um, your fourth book that's coming out in June, Inspired, Slaying Giants, Walking on Water, and Loving the Bible Again. Um, <clears throat> first of all, I hope it's okay. I released a bunch of the advanced reader copies uh, to all the fundamentalist evangelical outlets <laughs> that I can, I can think of. <laughs> that's a great idea. Actually, yeah. my marketing people would be all about that because <laughs> like little secret, actually getting bad press from the right people <laughs> or the wrong people, I guess, uh, can, can help you with book sales. So yeah, thanks. Yeah. Maybe Sean Hannity has something to say about that. <laughs> oh, Sean Hannity's in, in some hot water right now. So <laughs> there's no telling a month from now when this right. podcast airs, like how, <laughs> you know, what else, you know, context wise, by the way, we're recording this on April the 18th. He could so. be president. Seriously. Like yeah. we just don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this, this book is a, a retelling of your theological journey from the hotel of the scopes monkey trials, Dayton, Tennessee, as you alluded to earlier, and the impact of culture and world events through reexamining your relationship with scripture today. And uh, one of the quotes that sticks out to me, 
Um, it was as if the Bible turned into an unsettling version of one of those children peekaboo books. Turn the page to Joshua, the Battle of Jericho, and peekaboo, it's genocide. Gone was the comforting storybook of my childhood, the useful handbook of my adolescence, and the definitive answer book of my college years. What was the, the drive for you behind the creation of this book? Yeah, I, well, I wanted to do something just completely different. Um, and I, I really felt like when I was talking to people who, like me, had grown up conservative evangelical, loving the Bible, um, memorizing large portions of the Bible before they were 10, um, you know, winning all the Awana awards, just like me, you know, growing up a Bible nerd. Uh, and then when they reached their young adulthood, they had some questions about the, the biblical text and is this really a science book? Is this really history? Is you know, and what do we do with these troubling stories about genocide and, uh, where God seems to condone killing men, women, and children in battle and, you know, and the, patriarchal undertones and you know, all this stuff. Uh, they wrestled with it and, and the Bible was a source of doubt and questions. And for a lot of those people, they just never really found their way back to the Bible. Maybe they found their way back to faith uh, and maybe they're kind of, you know, limping along as like I often do as a, a person who doubts, but is still compelled and drawn to the story of Jesus, but they just haven't really been able to make sense of what is the Bible? You know, what role should it play in my faith? And what do we do with these stories that we once loved as children, but then became stumbling blocks, uh, many of them as adults. So I wanted to address that since that was something that I was hearing a lot from my readers, uh, but I wanted to do it in a really creative way that would pique people's interest and intrigue them. So this book is different than anyone I've ever written because it in includes poetry and short stories and I soliloquies. I do a short screenplay uh, that kind of retells the story of Job. Uh, do a choose your own adventure that retells the story of Peter walking on water, puts it in a modern context of a Baptist preacher. <laughs> so um, I had so much fun writing this book. Uh, I wanted, because I, what I really wanted to do was introduce people to the scholarship and the hermeneutical approaches that changed my view of scripture. But I really wanted to do it in a way that was compelling and interesting and creative that wasn't boring, <laughs> you know, because I spent a lot of time reading really thick commentaries. And I, I mean, I love that stuff. I eat it up. I think it's great. But, you know, translating that for regular people, that was my mission with this book. And I had a really good time writing it. And I hope people have a good time reading it. So you know, basically the idea is I want to introduce people to uh, some new ways of interpreting the Bible that take its historical context seriously, that take takes the different genre categories we find in scripture seriously, introduces folks to you know, the scholarship that most pastors are pretty familiar with, but maybe regular people aren't, uh, and then do it in a way that piques their curiosity and, and maybe makes them laugh or uh, think. Um, yeah, and that just is fun. It's a fun book to discuss in a group. It's a fun group, a uh, fun book to uh, kind of play with a little bit, to spark the imagination. That was the goal, and we'll, we'll see <laughs> if it was accomplished, but that was the aim. Well, self-critique is always uh, the most rigid. Uh, so <clears throat> my family and off, often reminds me that um, I act like a child. So I thought I would quote the, the great uh, Lemony Snicket. Uh, Assumptions are dangerous things to make and like all dangerous things to make, 
If we make even the tiniest mistake, you could find yourself in terrible trouble. Making assumptions simply means believing things a certain way with little to no evidence to show you are correct. And you can see at once how this can lead to terrible trouble. <laughs> you know, I think one of the things that you've challenged readers to do is to re-examine their theological assumptions about scripture. Um, why do you think we, we come to a place where we feel like we've arrived and we know what we know, and that's all we need to know about God and scripture, and period. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, because it, there's so much security in that, you know. I miss it sometimes. I miss feeling like I had God figured out and the whole world figured out. That was great, man. Like, <laughs> you know, just thinking I'm right. most Everybody else is wrong, and I've got it figured out, and my future is certain. God is certain, you know that was great. It, it, there was a, just such a sense of security around that. So I think it's just human nature to want to stay in whatever ideological uh, comfort zone you find yourself. Like that's just, that's everybody's that way. I'm not, you know, none of us are special <laughs> in the sense that we don't want to be there. It's the most comfortable, safe place to be. Um, but you know, life happens. Um, you, you start to think more critically about certain things. You encounter people and uh, places that don't fit the mold and, um, you know, tragedy or joys that just don't fit the narrative. And suddenly you're in a very uncomfortable place having to rethink all of your assumptions. And so I've never seen it as something that I've mastered at all. I still would rather be in a comfortable place where my assumptions are safe I would still rather know it all and, um, you know, stay secure in that. I'm like everybody else, but you know, life has, and perhaps the spirit has different plans and has had different plans for me. And so I try my best to just be honest about that reality and share my own journey and share my own experiences with people as honestly as possible. And when I do that, it turns out, Oh, <laughs> I'm not alone. I'm not the only one who's experiencing this. And there's great comfort in that, just knowing that you're not the only person having a particular doubt or question about your faith or about the nature of reality. Um, you know, you're not the only one sitting in church thinking, oh my gosh, is any of this true? <laughs> or standing in the pulpit saying, oh my gosh, is any of this true? Uh, we're in good company, uh, those of us who wrestle uh, and question and doubt from time to time. Uh, we're not alone, but it's certainly not a comfortable experience. It's not one that I would have chosen for myself. Hmm. I think my favorite chapter in the book was Resistance Stories, um, in which you invite readers to re-examine the literary theme of beasts and principalities <clears throat> as the ancient future call to uh, contextual resistance. And as did the, the ancient Hebrews and early Christ followers, you know, resistance to the beast of Egypt and Babylon and Rome, you know, so too we are called to speak and act prophetically to modern day beasts of injustice. Yeah, you and, could write a whole book just about monsters in the Bible and I would yeah. be all about that. <laughs> There's a lot of cool creatures with monsters and beasts. Ah, I love it. <laughs> well, you wrote, um, you know, for a lot of Christians, especially American Christians, uh, prefer instead wild futuristic stories about children vanishing out of their clothes, airplanes dropping from the sky, pestilence overtaking the earth and democratic getting elected president <laughs> stuff of paper book and Christian uh, B movies. And I think that's because Americans, particularly white Americans have a hard time catching apocalyptic vision when they benefit too much from the status quo to want to peek behind the curtain. You know, 
what do you think um, it'll take for followers of Jesus in America to see the gospel connection and return to the compassionate and prophetic edge against social, racial, and political and economic injustice? Oh my word, that's like the million dollar question right now, right? <laughs> oh, you don't have the answer to it? Oh, <laughs> no, I okay. But, Interview done. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of, we're all longing for that, uh, even though it might make some of us uncomfortable, including myself. I mean, I really, I think the only way forward is, as always, to follow the folks on the margins, you know, the 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 people who have been prophetic voices for a long time, <laughs> uh, not just recently, not just, you know, a white post-evangelical 20-something on Twitter, <laughs> you know, we need to follow the lead of people who have been doing the good and hard work of um, resistance and um, prophetic witness uh, for many years. And so, you know, I think about, I mean, just one name that comes to mind is like William Barber, from the poor people who's running the poor people's campaign right now uh, and others in the black tradition of uh, prophetic resistance. Uh, we have a lot to learn. Those of us who are, you know, white folks have a lot to learn from um, the people who have been, who have seen America for what it is, um, the good and the bad, uh, the reality of it for perhaps longer than many of us have been seeing it that way. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it's just looking to people who are leading from the margins, uh, leading from communities that are uh, more historically oppressed uh, is really the only way forward, uh, yeah, in the, the months and, and years to come. I'm glad that there's more interest in, uh, in this and in considering the ways in which uh, America is an empire and the ways in which that empire, like empires past, uh, have, oppresses and hurts other people. I'm, I'm glad that we're talking about that more seriously uh, in recent years. Um, kind of sorry for the events that have led us to, to feel we need to do that. But um, yeah, but there's, there's already a pretty long and storied tradition around uh, seeing America this way and uh, prophetically speaking into that reality. Um, yeah, so look to the margins, look to the prophets, look to the weirdos, <laughs> you know, it's always the weirdos who, uh, who are crying from the wilderness and have, a, um, have some insights into what God's about to do. Just hope God doesn't invite any prophet to walk around naked for a couple years. To, yeah. <laughs> I love those stories about all the crazy stunts the prophets pulled, like, yeah. uh, who was it that lay on his side for like seven years on one side and I think about that sometimes when I'm super pregnant and really uncomfortable <laughs> and you can only lie on one side. I think it was Jeremiah. Did Jeremiah do that? See, we're just opening the door to get critiqued by somebody. Cause we it's can... okay. Somebody will know. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I feel like I mentioned it in the book even, I just can't remember whether it was like Jeremiah or. Back, back when we were 10 doing sword drill, we would have had this down packed. But, oh, totally. You know, yeah. At oh, yeah. 1.30 in the afternoon, you know, towards the end of the week, not not so much. But uh, we should have had somebody come on and moderate a, a real time sword drill. <laughs> <laughs> All I'm saying is I think you would win even 12 months pregnant. <laughs> nine, nine months pregnant. Good gracious. Well, oh, my gosh. <laughs> It feels like 12 when you're no, talking about apocalyptic literature. Yeah. <laughs> I would introduce. You've got to do this for three more months than most women. Uh, 
So I, I do love the fact that you're releasing this book and then giving birth to a child around the same time. So you've got that was a bad idea. Well, no, you've got you've got six <laughs> weeks to stay out of pocket to any response to it. So so how do you how do you want this book to be used? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I think more than any other book I've written, I hope that this book makes its way into like small groups for conversation. Um, just because I tried to write the whole thing as like one big conversation starter, uh, because I just know so many people, because I kind of, I speak to two audiences now. I speak to kind of the, the evangelical, post-evangelical group, and also to a lot more mainline churches, mainline Protestant churches, where they didn't grow up doing sword drills, <laughs> and uh, where the Bible is incorporated into liturgy into beautiful ways, but they don't, there's not the same emphasis on Bible study. But what both those groups have in common is they both want to be able to talk about the Bible in a way that embraces their um, intellectual integrity, uh, their doubts, their imaginations. Uh, they want to be able to talk about that with one another in uh, the setting of a church or in a small group or uh, whatever it may be. And there's, there's not that much out there for facilitating that. And so I think more than any other book I've written, I hope that this one finds its way into groups like that, into churches. Uh, not just into people's hands at home, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, I hope that it just sparks some good conversation. hope it inspires people to make some art and write some stories of their own, you know, around the Bible. And, I mean, I just hope it makes people more hungry, uh, hungrier for Scripture and for uh, learning more about the Bible and uh, maybe actually following some of those rabbit trails they've been afraid to go down, uh, following some of those questions that they've maybe been afraid to ask out loud. Because uh, I think the Bible is, the, you know, God can handle it, and the Bible invites that. It, it, uh, the Bible doesn't shy away from um, questions, wrestling, intrigue, <laughs> that sort of thing. It's, it invites it. So hopefully the book invites it too. We need to pause and tell you about one more of this episode's presenting sponsors, the CEB Women's Bible. The CEB Women's Bible invites you into a deeper conversation with Scripture. Unlike any other Bible you have on your shelf, the CEB Women's Bible celebrates that people engage Scripture from their own perspective by focusing on stories of women in the Bible, named and unnamed, and by engaging with reflections and articles that accompany the sacred text. The CEB Women's Bible helps you find yourself in Scripture in a new way. The 80 editors and contributors for the CEB Women's Bible, all of whom are women, help us notice the women in Scripture who had, until now, been invisible, which in turn trains our hearts to notice all of God's people today. The CEB Women's Bible includes introductions from biblical scholars, short articles, reflections on every chapter of the Bible, and portraits of women. Download the Letter of Ephesus, watch videos with the editors, meet the contributors, and find out more at cebwomensbible.com today. That's cebwomensbible.com. Rachel, according to angry blogger number five, you really don't believe in scripture. So why are you <laughs> asking people to, to read it? Uh, what do you be honest in this? What, what's your biggest fear for the book? Oh, that nobody's ever, ever asked me that about any book I've ever released. Hmm. Are you being sarcastic? No, I'm, no. Nobody's oh. ever asked me that for reals. Oh, sorry. No, no, it's, no, it's good. It's nice to be asked. Um, probably that I say something that is completely like <laughs> wrong you know like I had multiple scholars look this thing over like from a variety of traditions um you know, people credentialed people 
I had them, I insisted that my publisher pay for them to look it over. So I feel pretty good, but my big fear is that I just say something wrong, like that it was Ezekiel who lay on his side, or, you know what I mean? Like, I know that's, I probably should be fearing something more than that, but I think most writers are, are actually pretty terrified of glaring typos and just something really dumb that just somehow managed to not get caught in the edits. <laughs> so you have a, you have an advanced review copy, I think. So yours is, is probably riddled with mistakes. Oh um, no, this is, this is infallible. Yeah, no, it's, I can think of the exact page numbers where there are mistakes. Like that's how <laughs> obsessive I get about it. Like I can tell you every single book, like exactly which sentence I hate every time I read it, you know, you know how it is. So I think my biggest fear is that I just say something really dumb and, <laughs> and it distracts from the whole thing. But I think maybe with as many copies as we got out there by now, people will have seen that and caught it. And somebody would tell me like, there's spinach in your teeth. Also, you know, there are 66 books of the Bible, not 25, you know, something like that. <laughs> so. Well, that depends on who you ask actually. So really, you know, Catholics can have a different answer to how many books are in the Bible than Protestant <laughs> versus a Jewish reader. So I mean, I guess how my mind works is it just that's, goes all that's a footnote, you know, right there. <laughs> <laughs> like that's the other thing is that you just I covered so much ground and had to skip over so much. And I mean, writing a book about the Bible, that's kind of biting off a lot. And so you know, there's there's parts that I just really wish um, I could have spent more time on. I didn't even get to write it all about Song of Solomon, which is actually one of my favorite books in the Bible. <laughs> I love that. I love that book. And I didn't really get to write about it. So, yeah, I don't know. Believe it or not, somehow almost every single episode of this podcast, Song of Songs, comes up. That's weird, yeah. Andy. I would be I, worried about why that might be the case. I didn't say I. <laughs> I brought it up. It's on uh, everybody's mind. It's like, it's, yeah, yeah, sex is always on everybody's mind. Freud, so. Freud was right, except <laughs> the whole, you know, being in love with your mother kind of thing. Uh, all right. So, you know, at the end of the day, even if it, it's not going to flop, this book is going to be fantastic and people are going to use it That's and great. be blessed by it. You know, but still the fact that you're going to have a new baby girl at home and you're going to be just fine no matter, no matter what happens. But, but at the end of the day, what are your biggest hopes for this book? Oh, um, just that, yeah, again, just that people read it in community and that it inspires people to ask questions about the Bible and to want to learn more about the Bible. Um, yeah, if it points people back to the Bible and back to scholars and um, interpreters who do great work with the Bible, then yay, I, I feel like I mission accomplished. I think in many regards, when you kind of go through the, the grueling work of, of writing a book like this. And, and certainly I've never written a book, but you know, the only thing I can attribute it to is, uh, you know, preparing for the podcast or preparing sermons each week is sermons are no joke. <laughs> Let me just say like every now and then I'm speaking at a church and they ask me to do a homily, you know, and that's so stressful. How do you people do that every week or uh, even every month? Like that is, that's hard work. Like, because sometimes the text that comes up in the lectionary, you're just like, what? And <laughs> no, <laughs> anyway, it's never song of songs. It's never song of songs in the lectionary text. <laughs> That's a shame. Oh, it is the worst Darn. when you get asked to do like a 12-minute sermon. I, I got asked recently to do a 12-minute sermon, but then they interjected 
uh, two testimonies in the worship gathering right before. And it's like, oh, let me self-edit in the middle middle of this. But I, I think the only thing compared to is like, you know, like, you know, sermons, like by the time you get some, sometimes get done doing all the work of putting it all together, you're kind of just like, whatever, let it go, release it out into the world and, and see see what comes of it but oh yeah you're tired of it by the end so but i just let me say i have new respect for pastors who write sermons um having been asked to do it from time to time i used to think i used to be so much more critical of pastors and their sermons and now it's like well you know what if they're having a tough time like whatever we all get we all have bad days because it's it's hard that's it's it's hard to know what to, to say to a congregation when you have such a short amount of time to say something about one text so besides the obvious, uh, this book releasing in June, this whole new life coming into this world, what's, what's next for you? I cannot think past that. <laughs> <laughs> like literally, I cannot think past June because baby and book at the same time. Is there a life after that? I don't know. I don't know. Andy. Mm. Just going to get through that and, and then we'll see. I think I'd, I'd like to write maybe... No, I'm not even going to tell you what I'm thinking about writing about because that will change after giving birth. It always does. <laughs> I'm just going to draw the assumption that it's going to be volume two all on Song of Songs. Yes. A book on, no, no, no. Uh, two, two books, one on the monsters of the Bible and the other on Song of Songs. I just want maybe 1% credit. Uh, from Harper Collins when yeah. you're producing that. Video. I'll dedicate it to you, Andy. If I get to write a book just about Song of Songs, which <laughs> I can tell you right now, Thomas Nelson will never get on board with that. Then <laughs> I will. I will dedicate it to you. Uh, I think your husband would ask some pretty big questions. That would be weird. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't yeah. even think about how completely weird that would be. Yeah. yeah okay. Scratch that. Okay. Scratch that, Andy. I will thank you in the acknowledgement. <laughs> All right. If you want to stay connected with Rachel, you, you just go where books are sold. Uh, RachelHeldEvans.com on Twitter at RachelHeldEvans. Uh, Rachel, uh, you are nine months pregnant and you are a brilliant author that is very busy, but you took the time out to have a conversation with us. So thank you. Thank you for your time and thank you for uh, the amazing work you're doing for the kingdom of God. Oh, that means a lot. Thanks for your work as well. And thanks to the Cooperative Baptist for being so cooperative. this podcast is presented to you by the school of divinity at gardner webb university the school of divinity at gardner webb university exists to prepare men and women for christian ministry namely the work of the lord's church our two degrees the master of divinity and the doctor of ministry are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that god has placed on their lives the master of divinity offers six concentrations and the doctor of ministry can be obtained in either christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Gardner-Webb where, as one of our former deans once said, your heart and your head can be friends. Join us for the 2018 Pastor School, May 28th through the 30th, in partnership with Pittman Center of Congregational Enrichment. This year's guest speaker topics will focus on leadership and perilous times. For more information on the Divinity School and upcoming events, visit gardner-web.edu backslash divinity. Well, that's our episode. We'll see you next week. Visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship 
stories about our field personnel, chaplains, and church starters, as well as our advocacy work around the world. 